Well, hello, and welcome to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast where Brent and I are reading our way through Neil Gaiman's magical worlds one story at a time. My name is Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. Today, we are live from PhilCon, which is the longest-running SF convention in the world. Uh, Brent, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about the Neil Gaiman um, poem? Short story in the form of a poem, Cold Colors. Yeah, and this was uh, published in 1990 in Midnight Graffiti, though we've actually read it in the collection Smoke and Mirrors, which we have... uh brought some extra copies of to give away at the end of the show. And this is uh, a story that you know, holds a special place in, in my heart, at least, Brent. I don't want to speak for you, but we read this poem a lot in high school in the collection Angels and Visitations uh, in the 90s. And that was really Gaiman's very first short story collection. It was a small press collection. It is long out of print. Uh, in fact, it's kind of, a, kind of a treasure. You can look for it on, on Amazon and see precisely what type of a, a treasure it is. And this was also a, a book that was just gorgeously illustrated. And, you know, you had the copy of it. I did not. So uh, it was a real, a real treasure for me, a real big deal for me. But this, also, this story also feels like a very big deal to me because it is essentially, I think, an encapsulation of everything that the 1990s are in speculative fiction in just 10 pages. Uh, this story that we're going to talk about is really it's, it's urban fantasy meets cyberpunk. Uh, these genres, I think, are the real hallmark of the 1990s. These are the sort of developments in speculative fiction of the 1990s, not generally mashed together quite like this, but it feels very 90s. Yeah, it's great. Um, and also, you and I had the benefit of hearing one of uh, Neil's recordings of him reading it aloud um, in a collection called Warning Contains Language at that time. Um, since he's done the audiobook for Smoke and Mirrors, where it's now printed, where uh, folks can listen to it as well. Um, and so I also hear Neil's voice kind of intoning the passages now when I read it as well. So it's it's great. And But I always hear the same kind of sing-songy voice he used in that original recording, which had some great orchestrations, I believe, by Dave McKeon uh, behind it, um, which nicely offset it without... So you didn't miss the art as much that you would have gotten when you were looking at the hard copy. Yeah, sadly, we have none of that with us. We don't actually have Neil Gaiman here to read to read through the, the poem, but we will uh, we'll do our best. We're going to go through this. You know, as we said, okay, this is a poem. Uh, so we're going to go through Cold Colors, one stanza at a time. We'll sort of describe for you what's actually going on in, in the story. We'll talk a little bit about the language and especially about the, the world, the imaginary world that he is, is building here. So the very first stanza just lets us know right away that this is a, a first-person poem, right? We're going to follow a, a narrator, an unnamed narrator, as he just describes a day in his regular life in an alternate and, and quite weird London. And this first stanza immediately introduces us to the speculative nature, the, the, the sort of fantastical nature of this world that Gaiman is imagining here, which is really blending these two 90s genres, the cyberpunk and the urban fantasy. And the story begins with our narrator telling us that he is woken at 9 a.m. by a man who is selling pigeons door to door. Uh, this pigeon seller, pigeon monger, I think I'm going to call him, actually, he's, he's adamant that these are living, breathing pigeons. They've definitely not been reanimated. And that's really the first clue that we're in a fantasy of some sort, this idea that, well, the pigeons could be expected to have been dead pigeons who've been reanimated. And we also learn that the, the pigeon monger used to work at a financial securities analysis company, but he was laid off when he was replaced by a computer. And importantly, I think as soon as he could be replaced by a computer. And that then really is the first plot element that is the, the, the clue that clues us into the idea that the rise of computers in the 90s is going to be really the one of the themes of this story. Well, 
And it's great because he was replaced by a computer that was connected via a serial cable, an RS-232, to a quartz sphere. So here we have the idea of kind of someone using a sphere to do kind of, you know, fantasy tropes of trying to clairvoyantly look at the future while we simultaneously have this thing being networked to a or connected to a computer via a serial interface. Right. And now we're going to we're going to get into the sort of the mixing of these two genres here, because really the question remains, right? Why is this guy going door to door selling pigeons? That's not you know generally the job that I think we would turn to if we were replaced by computers. But it turns out that what's happening here is that the computers run, at least in some way, at least a little bit on magic. And our narrator even has a chalk circle around his computer and he's got wards hanging on the corners of his his monitor. But then we get the real darkness that's going to suffuse this story, as this so often does suffuse these Neil Gaiman stories, especially these early Neil Gaiman stories, because it turns out that what you need to do in this world is to sacrifice a pigeon before you use the computer. But I will say that, yeah, it's, it's, gru- it's gruesome. Fortunately, yeah, can you imagine if we had to do that with our cell phones, right? It'd just be blood everywhere. Now I'm getting gruesome. But I, I wasn't sure, Brendan, I'm hoping you can help me out with this. Really, what is the mechanic here, right? What is the pigeon sacrifice actually doing? Is it that you have to to sacrifice the pigeon to get the computer to work at, at all or is the sacrificing the pigeon some kind of security it's like a like a protection from magical malware or something and he sacrifices the pigeon after he refreshes the chalk chalk circle so i envisioned it to be kind of a protection against kind of uh, something coming to him through perhaps through the computer from the network um and it's protective in purposes however he does do it before he turns the computer on so i just don't know if this, the danger is so high that he doesn't want to risk the computer being on without having the pigeon sacrifice in the books, if you will, or if it's that the sacrifice of the pigeon is necessary perhaps to power part of the computer itself. It's really not clear to me. Um, but I love the description of when the computer is turned on. Uh, Neil Gaiman describes it as um, – it chugs and hums inside the fans blow like storm winds on old oceans ready to drown poor merchant men, which reminds me a lot of Prospero and the Tempest uh, mm-hmm. by Shakespeare in which you've got, again, magic to, to kind of conjure that thing. So imagining that from the fan of, you know, a desktop computer pushing away at a fair amount of power um, through it, um, whether it's that the computer itself has it or it has it from the pigeon, I don't know. So, I mean, do you have a thought as to is the pigeon for powering the computer or just defensive? Yeah, I, su- I assumed it was actually like, you know, virus protection, basically. But, you know, you want to get that on before before the computer turns on, because we are going to see some real concerns here or, or uh, you know, repeated incidents of or fear of things attacking your computers. And of course, it's not going to be actual computer viruses. It's going to be more of these fantastical elements. I love this simile that you have read here. I mean, it's it's amazingly almost uh, you know incongruous right this this idea of 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 a merchant ship a sort of clipper ship you know sinking is is what the image that we get of this computer turning on but it also calls to mind right this idea that that in the 90s this digital revolution the computer revolution is changing the way that the economy functions right we get that with the fact that this pigeon monger used to have a, you know a steady kind of white collar job but he's now replaced and then giving us this image of the demise of the moving goods around the world in vessels to be replaced by the the new digital economy that is you know really just rising as Gaiman is writing this it's uh, it's, it's absolutely masterfully done well that was all just stanza one so let's do stanza <laughs> two now the, the, the first two stanzas are the long so we'll, we will get through this story, I promise. 
So that was the narrator's morning. And, and now we're going to get into the afternoon while our narrator, narrator is walking around London. And he says that London has been changed recently. His London used to be the London of our real world, or at least of our real world circa 1990. But the cursor deleted certain certainties. Great line there. And so now it is different. And we don't ever really learn, at least not explicitly, what actually happened to make London different. But we do see some of the ways in which it is different. We see some of, of the, the effects of this, the consequences of this. And really, the, the big thing here is that hell, literal hell, has opened up beneath London. It's displaced the, the tube, the subway system, and there are even like actual chasms of hell uh, coming up into the, the surface of, of London. And in fact, there is one of these chasms in uh, Trafalgar Square, right where the, the gigantic statue of Lord Nelson is today. There's this chasm that looks right down into hell, and people passing by can look down and see the souls of the damned. And these include people they know, people they know who have died and are now trapped in in hell. And the way that Gaiman presents this is that it's even something of a a tourist attraction. And we get this great scene here of a a person showing a a young child to her dead and damned and tormented great uncle Joseph. This is actually, I think, one of the one of the best scenes in the in the poem. And we also find out that it's not just hell that's manifested on Earth, though, but some of the nicer places have also manifested here. Uh, We get Avalon and Leoness. We get the the Isles of the Blessed. And all three of these are island paradises for virtuous people in in various European mythologies, Uh, some of them King Arthur stories, some of this Greek mythology. And apparently also there there are tube trains, the subway trains that will actually stop. They'll pick up virgins or they'll pick up people who are pure of heart and then take them to these these nice places, Avalon and the Isles of the Blessed. But these trains, these tube trains are so rare as to be almost legendary, really. So... Uh, there's a lot going on in this new world. It's really a you know a world in which the forces of evil and good have manifested on Earth, which is a, a pretty common theme for Neil Gaiman. Yeah, um, and it's as you said, we don't know what exactly happened. There's a reference that the cursor deleted certain certainties. Um, we don't know if it's some kind of cosmic cursor, if it's just that Neil likes the fact that cursor sounds like curse, um, which when I first ta- heard the audio and did not mm-hmm. recollect as well what the the poem said itself, I thought, well, maybe it's the curse deleted certain certainties is what I heard in my head. Um, so it's really not clear exactly what has given rise to this, but we do have this mixture of things, but then people kind of blindly going, whatever happened, happened long ago, enough ago that people are just kind of blindly going about their day. Mm-hmm. And as you said, there's even tourists who are waving at distant relatives or not so distant relatives, your great uncle down there, um, Nerissa. Um, yeah. Wave your Nerissa. great uncle. Wave your great name. Yeah. And Nerissa is such a great name that actually uh, at one point, one of my World of Warcraft characters was named Nerissa. I <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but do you have like an entire fan fiction backstory for this little this little kid in this poem? That's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, it is. You're right, but I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you to that at some point. And one of the re- details that I love about this scene too, the way Gaiman does this, is that it's not just that people are passing by this chasm and looking into hell and waving at their relatives. People have constructed a f- a, a, a fence around this, or like a a. a, a, a a railing is the word I'm looking for here, like the zoo. And in fact, he explicitly says, it's just like the zoo now, right? We've replaced the zoo with you can look down in, in hell. And yeah, I like this, uh, this, uh, the, the cursor idea here because there's a kind of a cosmology, a cosmological idea here that, or a metaphor maybe, right? That the universe, that the way that creation has happened is like uh, an operating system. And so, you know, if you accidentally do something with the cursor, 
you can have this kind of malfunction, this kind of accident. I think it's a pretty good metaphor. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of um, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, but that just being civilization and culture and language, the idea that there is some kind of underlying base code. So here we have the idea of an underlying base code for reality itself, that someone or someone's or thing or whatever can somehow augment it. And it, it also means that perhaps before there was the hell and there was regular London and things have just kind of melded together versus the idea that something completely alien and non-existent has come into being. It, it's more that, that something has merged here and kind of the firewalls are down. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is a real hallmark of, of cyberpunk, this idea, right. Of the computer kind of as metaphor for what the world even actually is itself. So, okay. That's stanzas one and two. And those are the really long stanzas. As I said, I mean, each of them is, is two pages long. So that's actually really 40% of the, the text so far, but now we've got a third stanza and this one is just eight lines and it's about witches. So we can add witches to the, 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 the demons and, and the, the, the fairies that we've already got uh, going on here. Uh, and these, these witches are old women with iron teeth who live in cottages. And, and, and they live in these huts and cottages on, that are actually walking around on bird legs. They're mobile. It's not just that they're on stilts, right? They actually have bird legs. They can move around. And here we see them sharing the streets of London with, with cars and, and bicyclists and, and city buses as well. And this is also a great image, right? It's another one that Gaiman uses uh, a lot. We've seen this before. We think we can actually get some of this in The Sandman, right? Yeah, uh, we do. And in um, the Books of Magic series particularly. And the bird-legged cottages just calls to mind a Slavic myth about Baba Yaga and her um, traveling via mortar and pestle, but also um, having a cottage that stands on bird legs. So here we have the idea that there are multiple bird-legged cottages, that these giant things are kind of strolling around, and you can kind of imagine them in, you know, in, in the background. Um, and again, just no one's reacting as if this is different from normal, because at this point, this is normal for the folks who are in London. And one of the things that I'm interested in this image of the, the, the witches on, on, and their, their bird-legged cottages. I think something that differentiates the witches from the fantastical elements that we've actually had up to this point is that demons and then places like Avalon and the, the Blessed Isles, these are instances of uh, you know, barriers between our world and other worlds or, or other planes, other aspects of the, the universe perhaps breaking down, they're becoming permeable. But presumably, right, these witches are actually just human beings who practice some kind of wicked magic. So what actually do you think, Brent, has, is it that has happened to bring these witches and their bird-legged cottages into London from, I don't know, the mysterious dark forests where they usually dwell. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, and it's not entirely clear to me whether they are humans who, similar to our protagonist, are just using kind of magic as well as technology to go about their day to earn their living to not be replaced by a computer that's RS-232 to a quartz sphere. <laughs> but, um, or if they are in the parlance of some mythology, the witches are actually kind of external you know, creatures like the fairy or the fae or like demons are. So it's not entirely clear to me whether it's, it's individuals who are just normal humans but practicing stuff. You know, I have keys. I, I turned 16. I got keys to the cottage with the bird legs, finally. <laughs> um, parallel parking, not, not great. <laughs> um, not good rearview mirrors either. But um, Or if it's that these are um, something from somewhere else, something that, again, the barriers have broken down, and so they have spilled into um, kind of 
normal, conventional, well-lit London in a way that um, it's not you know, normally. So it's – I'm not entirely sure you know, which way there. But either way, it's, it's an image that I love. Yeah, I mean, this is this is just a way of complaining about traffic in any big city, right? We've all we've all experienced this. I mean, can you imagine if witches got added to our regular morning commutes? It's how terrible it would be. Although, actually, these these bird leg stilt cottages are like stepping over the cars and stuff. I guess, frankly, actually, I kind of want one. I think it would make my commute a lot a lot easier. Pros and cons. Pros and cons. cons. Yes, right. (laughs) We don't know what else might be at the height of the cottage. Maybe you have to worry about, you know, harpies swooping in or maybe it's less of a problem if you're closer to the ground. Yeah. Or just or just bridges. Right. Well, we are late in the afternoon now in the the, the next stanzas here. It's, in fact, nearly dark in London in November. And Gaiman is going to give us here a tour of Old Soho, which at the time that he wrote this, uh, Old Soho was the red light district of London. We're going to get some of that here in this fourth stanza. Uh, and I think this stanza probably is actually my favorite of all of them. It's certainly the most impressionistic. It gives us this real sense of the sights and sounds and even some of the smells of walking around this speculative fiction London. And here Gaiman really paints, I think, a really great picture of this urban fantasy cyberpunk Soho as an incredibly bustling district. It's full of shops and shoppers. It's full of people selling wares on the streets. And these people selling wares includes prostitutes. And some of these prostitutes, in fact, it might even be all of these prostitutes, are actually demons. They're incubi and succubi. But of course, if you would like to hire them, you can't use cash. You need to use your credit card because this is the digital future right here. And this is an image that I really love. These these demon prostitutes who won't take cash. This is a good joke, I think. But most of this stanza is actually given over to an encounter with the demon Mephistopheles, who is famous from the Faust story. We've all heard of Mephistopheles before. But here he's hawking his wares in an alley off Brewer Street. And inside his trench coat, he's got databased old invocations for sale. Blight an enemy? Wither a harvest? Baron a consort? Debase an innocent? The narrator, not actually interested in any of those curses, or maybe any curses at all, so Mephistopheles actually tries to tell, sell him a, a, uh, a voice synthesizer, which he puts on like a little display table, and then has this voice synthesizer recite a prayer to Beelzebub. Uh, this is another image that I, I love from the poem. But it is also kind of a sad image, right? Because this this version of Mephistopheles does not actually seem to be doing very well in this changed world. He's gone from being something of a, a scary predator that people write plays about to just being a street hustler selling stuff out of the inside of his trench coat. I don't think he's doing very well. Yeah, I mean, it, it gives us Mephistopheles who is just kind of mundane and, and kind of boring in that way. Um, but also that makes me think that that's part of also how Mephistopheles maybe gets you is that just a 10 pack of floppies for your soul is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's when you really need to save that term paper. You mm. pay that price. And maybe that's how Mephistopheles gets you. It's the little things. If he's grandiose and chewing the scenery. Yeah. You know, not to trade things to that guy. Yes. <laughs> I don't trust him. He keeps on maniacally laughing and cackling, but the guy who's just, you know, trying to make an honest buck, sir, just trying to make an honest buck. Then yeah, I, 
perhaps feeling pity for him is part of his sales technique. Yeah, and he, he might actually have a strategy that we as the audience don't see. I mean, he has been around for a while. He has been a big deal, so probably he knows what he's up to. I mean, to be clear, he knows more about selling things out of the inside of a trench coat than I actually know. I've tried this for a while and have not made a single a single sale. Well, in the, the fifth stanza now, we come to my favorite place in London. I mean, my favorite place in the real London. In fact, it's one of my favorite places in the whole world. This is St. Paul's Cathedral, and we are here to see the Archbishop, who is also not doing well in this new demonic cyberpunk world. He needs a shave. He's got the shakes. His clerical vestments are stained with wine. He's also got a cough, and he's, he's hugging himself and rocking, and, and he's humming. He's humming this phrase, input, output, input, output. And he's even sometimes feeding communion wafers to the, the pigeons. And this is an image like straight out of Mary Poppins, right, where we've seen this same thing happen at St. Paul's. And he doesn't do much sermonizing or you know, administering of the sacraments anymore in this new world. But what he has done is set up a business outside of the cathedral selling holy water, right? He still has this sort of holy magic that can bless water. And the narrator is going to use this holy water in order to defend off sirens and fetches and also some other types of demons who like to try to get at him via the, the phone lines, because this is still a world with modems, right? Uh, and sometimes these, these sirens and fetches and other demons and so on will even get trapped on his answering machine, and he needs this holy water to to deal with them. And before we leave the archbishop and, and go on in the story here, we get another big hint about what is actually going on in this world. And the narrator says says to the archbishop here, says, look, it's not your fault. It's just a multi-user system. If prayers could be networked, if saintware were up and running, if you could make your side as reliable as they've made theirs... And he kind of trails off from this. And then the narrator comments to us that cold wars produce bad losers. So what's going on here, I guess, right, is that there is a cosmic spiritual conflict between good and evil, an actual battle for souls in this world that's also got this computing element to it. And importantly, right, what's different here is that the evil side has actually embraced computers. And because of that, is winning. And hell now is even manifested on earth, or at least opened up some of these chasms. And the good side has has not done this. And I, I really like, you know, that that we get a, a name here for what it would be called if they had embraced the you know, power of computers, this idea of saintware. What, what do you think is the the name for the demonic computing system that we're actually seeing in operation here, like sinware or something? <laughs> Uh, or just normal situation, or I think it's the advantage of there is not one operating system. I think what we have here manifest somewhat is just that these evil powers are far more at home with chaos and kind of in the, the, the you know traditional Dungeons and Dragons lexicon of the lawful versus chaos spectrum. You have creatures that just can embrace the chaos and roll with it versus someone who is used to a regimented way that society and civilization should be ordering itself and then is caught unawares in what to do when things have changed and that there are rules and why do you not notice that there are rules and i think even in contemporary politics someone could maybe see something right now where there are rules why do we not see that there are rules and you should not do certain things yeah, I like the idea that it's really the element of, of chaos here, right? Because that we've even seen that already in the, the, the image of the shipwreck and so on, that, that it's we're thinking here about the way that this computer revolution, this digital revolution is, is chaotic, it's destabilizing. And so it's really, it's not sort of maybe just a, a kind of uh, two opposites here, but that it's, it's, they're not even necessarily actually playing the same game or at least using the same strategy. I think that's a good insight here. 
Well, stanza six, are you ready for stanza six? This is a, a big one here. It's actually just one line, and the line is this. News at 10, and here is Abel Drugger reading it. Uh, I never really quite understood what this line was, certainly when we were in high school, but Abel Drugger is actually a character from Ben Johnson's play, The Alchemist, which is a, a real scathing critique of greed, uh, and Abel Drugger is a kind of dupe character. He's kind of a stupid character in this play. Uh, so maybe I'm still not entirely sure what this line is about here, but maybe it's the idea that in this cyberpunk world, right, news can't be trusted because it's just this kind of dummy character who's just reading it to us. Well, and it could also have something to do with, again, the fact that certain certainties have been deleted and chaos is kind of manifest and everyone is just kind of at home with the chaos. And so it's the idea that you would be informed about what to do next and to whether should I carry an umbrella today? At this point, we're so far past should I carry an umbrella when you're worried about (laughs) not being stepped on by a bird-legged cottage that, you know, you just just never mind. (laughs) Well, in this in this stands here, this idea that the news is on at ten here on the TV, right? This is uh, the the sing- signal to us that the narrator has come home from his day out, uh, really just to get holy water. It seems to be the only thing that he actually went out and did with his day. But he took a nice walk. It's a nice thing to do. So stanza seven now tells us that the narrator at home sees something in his peripheral vision, and he hopes it's. A mouse. Of course, it's almost certainly not a mouse. And now it's bedtime, and and bedtime is going to be stanza eight here. So the narrator feeds the pigeons, and then he goes to bed. But momentarily, uh, he thinks about downloading a succubus, downloading a demon lover, a demon prostitute, right? Or he does also say maybe he'll just download some kind of demon sidekick, just someone to spend some time with. We do see that the narrator is a fairly lonely kind of person here. But in the end, he decides not to do this, even as the modem's red eyes look at him invite. And part of why he decides not to do this is that viruses are a problem. It's better to play it safe, even if he is bored and and lonely in this world. But he does have his pigeons, right? From his kitchen, the pigeons are making noise. Uh, Gaiman here has this great line. He says, they're dreaming of left-handed knives and athenors and mirrors, right? All the, the, the tools that the narrator uses to sacrifice these pigeons at least once a day, I think, is the sense that we have here. Uh, the pigeon, the Pigeon blood stains the floor of his study, and these are really the narrator's last thoughts before he drifts off to to sleep and to his own dreams. This is a pretty gruesome image of what this guy's house is like. Presumably for a while he was trying to mop up the blood, but he's just resigned himself to that this is what the world is now, and why bother? And he's a lonely guy, because as you said, we saw him go out, and he only interacts with people who are trying to sell him something or who he is, in the one case with the Archbishop, taking pity on him and wanting to make a sale. So it's he's just it, – it's very lonely because he, he references seeing other people, recognizing their family. There's no mention of him seeing his family. There's no recollection at any point that he looked down and saw family. Or when he sees the tube trains that are there to transport virgins, there's no reference to the fact that you know he knows that you know a family member – got a ride once it was just no i've heard someone else it's just so there's he's very disconnected from everything in some ways except for the physical act of what he does with a pigeon Mm. every day and the chalk that he draws around his computer every day and then the peripherals of the computer itself the mouse and the modem and the other things those are the things that are connected in real to him and so when he thinks even about companionship here as you said he thinks about downloading a succubi or an incubi he doesn't think about 
calling a friend. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is the loneliness of the the digital world, right? This image of of we can actually have the whole world at our fingertips and our computers, but there is this way, the sense at least, in which that isolates us from the companionship of real people. I mean, this is you know, uh, this is what we talk about when we talk about what social media does to, to kids and so on. Now, this is a real, this is the world we're living in. And here, in this case, at this moment that Gaiman is writing this, he, Gaiman and, and other people writing cyberpunk stories are thinking that this is what the future is going to be like. And he's showing us here, this this guy who is motivated entirely by maintaining his computer right and and getting the things he needs in order to have these digital technologies but we don't really see that he has a a life that that would be a life that seems worthwhile that seems connected to actual real people in in any way so there is maybe something of a cautionary tale here as well well it is nighttime now, and the, the narrator tells us that sometimes he wakes up in the middle of the night, suddenly comprehending something. Right? I think we've, we've all had this moment, right? And he scribbles down his revelation, knowing that, knowing that it may turn out to be important in the morning, since magic is a nighttime thing. But then he remembers that magic isn't a nighttime thing anymore. Magic is an all-the-time thing now. And then he muses that things seemed a lot simpler before we had computers, Waking or maybe dreaming, it's not really clear. The, the narrator hears wild Sabbaths outside, which is Sabbaths, and, and screaming winds and, and metal machine music. There are witches out there astride ghetto blasters, and ghetto blaster is not a phrase I've used in decades. That's a fun thing. I don't know when the next time I'll say that out loud will be. Uh, and then these witches land on the, the heath for their meeting, for their, their, their nighttime Sabbath here. Uh, and there's a, a familiar face in all of this, or at least maybe there is. And it's the, the pigeon monger who woke the narrator up this morning. And when the pigeon monger sees the narrator looking at him out his window, he addresses him. He says... We do what we can. Everybody's got the right to turn an honest penny. We're all bankrupt, sir. We're all redundant. But we make the best of it. Whistle through the blitz. And so now we're, we're at the end of the story here. And here are the last lines of this poem. I nod and draw the curtains. Junk mail is everywhere. They'll get you. One way or another, they'll get you. Someday. I'll find my tube train underground. I'll pay no fare. Just, this is hell. And I want out of it. And then things will be simple again. It will come for me like a dragon down a dark tunnel. And this is seemingly a pretty pessimistic note to to end on. But Brent, I wonder if there is actually something optimistic here, right? There's real sadness, but there might actually be hope, right? Does the narrator think that he's going to get a tube train to Avalon or the, the Blessed Isles eventually at some point? Or does he think that he might actually just prefer to be one of the damned who's living in this demonic cyberpunk dystopia i mean i think from the text as we're given it he thinks part of him thinks that there will be a tube train he'll pay no fare he'll get his ride he will ride off and escape this chaos but i think deep down he knows and i think that's what that last line is about is that they'll get him and it'll come for him eventually and he already you know we've seen perhaps has made a deal with the devil for his regular pigeons now mm-hmm. and there's costs involved with that and it you know it's slippery slope is uh, something that perhaps is an overused phrase but yet here we have it and again 10 pack of uh, blink floppies for your soul mm-hmm. sounds like a high price until you really need those floppies and so particularly with him being so isolated and having we don't know his age we don't know mm-hmm. what life expectancy is even like anymore but it, it seems to me that 
intellectually, he wants to think that he can outsmart it and he can keep that chalk circle secure. But he knows deep down it's a waiting game and at some point that's it. Yeah, there's, so there's a, there's another question here for you, Brent, which is that, so we, I, I kind of left out a detail here, which is that the the pigeon monger out here with the witches, though the witches are seemingly treating him like he is actually the, the devil. But because we're told maybe this is a dream, maybe it actually happened, we're not, it's not really clear. Uh, do you think that this actually happened? Do you think the pigeon monger actually is the devil who was masquerading as a pigeon monger and that the deal that they've struck in the morning about come on Tuesdays and deliver pigeons to me regularly was a, a, a trick? I don't think that it, it was a trick, but I do think it was the devil. Um, and I do think whenever I've heard the story, I always thought of it as he maybe only kind of murkily recalls what's going on, but that that either was the devil incarnate or it was some agent or manifestation thereof. And it wasn't just kind of him being worried that maybe that's what got him. Um, but I may, might be wrong. Maybe he's just paranoid and not actually making deals with the devil. I guess that'd be the upside. Yeah, I guess for me, I've always had a hard time really thinking of this person as being the devil walking around because I guess I feel like the actual devil would have more power in this world than having to do this. But it also might just be something that the devil thinks is fun to do this. Well, and I I think I liken it to, you know, whether we view how we saw Mephistopheles earlier as is he someone to feel sorry for and that he's fallen to this? Or is he someone who has realized that he doesn't have to do that much work to get us to betray some of our own, you know, um, best interests in order to find the minor advantage and that's how you get in? Um, and I also, when we see that when he has the, the dream, perhaps, or he catches in the night eye, night's eye, the uh, devil with a bunch of witches hoovering around London, which is great because <laughs> I can imagine them with actual Hoover vacuums as opposed to brooms. Um I'm reminded of um, uh, the Russian story Master Margarita, where there is a bit where you have denizens of hell who are cavorting around Moscow and St. Petersburg on their brooms. And so so to me, I've never questioned this, but I also have never thought that mm, I need to feel that Mephistopheles or the devil are, you know, going for the last resort versus just finding that things are pretty easy and, you know, you might as well go door to door in the morning and then spend the evening flying around and everyone's paid in advance. Yeah, I guess there's a there's a way to, you know, we can go back to thinking about what is it that's actually happened that's made this world. And I guess... For me, I've, I've, I've maybe always imagined that, that there's, there is this actual cosmic battle going on here, but that's actually really not what Gaiman says in the text. He does say that this is just kind of an accident. And so Mephistopheles, the devil as pigeon monger here, maybe are just taking advantage of uh, an accident that benefits them, that makes their life easier and more comfortable, that maybe it's not being seen entirely as a, a, a battle, that there's just some kind of cosmic accident that's happened here. Well, or, I mean, we've maybe given them too much credit in this way. (laughs) Maybe Mephistopheles and the devil are not any smarter or better position than the Archbishop was Mm. regarding Saintware. Maybe it's just that they were unexpected, not expecting this to happen. And this happened to be the thing that then they, they, you know, that this happened to be where the industry they fell into. There's pigeons everywhere. People want to use pigeons. Easy to come by pigeons. But yet people put a value on it in this world, which... It's very strange for me to think of. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, and so that's maybe just them rolling with it as well and not 
necessarily having kind of a great scenery-chewing demonic plan. Well, something we always do when we're talking about issues of, of Sandman, which is where we are at in the, the, the regular non-live show, uh, something we always do is talk about the title of issues. And I think we should talk about the title of this poem as well, this cyberpunk urban fantasy story, Cold Colors. What do you think this means? What is, the, what is this title getting at? And I always assume that the Cold Colors was a reference to kind of the computers and kind of the cold distance that they might inherently have um, from, you know, again, he doesn't seem to have interactions with other people other than sales folks to keep his computer running. Um, and so I assume the cold colors are the cold, the colors associated with what's appearing to him on his monitor and from his mouse and, and that blinking. But I, what do you associate with? Yeah. I, you know, I think it's an evocative title. Certainly there's, there's some alliteration, uh, coldness suffuses the story right we're actually told that even the you know it's november which is you know as it is now actually it's frequently cold in november as it is now but that it's colder than usual right and so coldness seems to be a real feature of this story and and maybe some of that is is game and playing with uh our our traditional notions of hell in Western literature where we get fire image, but then with Dante, right, we get this idea that hell is actually cold because it's the furthest from the the light of God. That seems maybe to be something that's going on here, an image that, uh, an idea that, that Gaiman is, is drawing on. But I like this idea that, that the, it's about the colors that computer screens are, right? When we boot up a computer, or when we boot up a computer in the 90s anyway, that the colors we see are uh, cold colors, uh, cold in the sense of thinking about the, 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 the color wheel, right? Cold as, as opposed to warm colors. But of course, warmth, right, is something that we think of as being positive, right? When we talk about someone being a warm person versus a cold person. And this is a lonely person, right? I think his, his life might be cold in kind of every level. The weather itself is actually cold. His relationships with other people are cold. He doesn't have warmth in his, in his life. One of the other things, one of the other things we usually do when we're talking about Sandman, uh, the comic book, is talk about what each other's or what our own favorite panels mm-hmm. are. Uh, but for this case, why don't we talk about what a favorite passage may be? What was your favorite passage? There are a lot of great ones to choose from. There are. I mean, that's one of the real benefits. I mean, one, everybody knows Gaiman's an amazing wordsmith, but it's really spectacular when he's writing poetry, when he's he's playing with grammar and syntax as well. He really gets to shine here and is really doing a lot with images. So. I have picked a, a, a brief passage from the second stanza, and this is really a, a description of the, the scenery of London. I will read it here and then tell you why I like it, why I think this is the best part of the poem here. Gaiman writes, Pigeons flutter around hell, dancing on the updrafts. Race memory, perhaps telling them that somewhere around here there should be four lions, unfrozen water, one stone man above. And these just you know, really it's just two lines here in the poem these two lines i think these beautifully capture a scene that is quintessentially london london which is pigeons at trafalgar square but gaiman makes it weird he makes it strange right and it's not just weird for people that there's suddenly this chasm to hell in the middle of the kind of most iconic or one of the most iconic places in london it's also weird for pigeons right this entire urban ecosystem that they live in has been totally disrupted by this intrusion of hell they're also now being preyed on by people and being captured and and sold and i also really like here right this this use of should be right there should be four lions unfrozen water one stone man above rather than used to be right even though he's actually writing about 
memory, right? But using should be rather than used to be here, I think hammers home the idea that this world that Gaiman envisions is not right, right? It's not how the world should be. It's a, a nightmare. Something has gone wrong here. And I also just love that he tells this from the perspective of the pigeons themselves, right? We, it's why he doesn't actually say, hey, this is Trafalgar Square I'm describing here. We get a description of the attributes of this place in London that matter to pigeons, which is to say perches and, and water, right? Stone you can you can stand on and then the water that you can drink. And there's just, yeah, there's so much going on in just these three lines. I absolutely love them. Um, and my favorite lines are immediately prior to those lines. Um, so uh, we did not coordinate that. <laughs> it's not the first time this has happened. If we though. had, we yeah. would have flipped it. That's true. Yes, <laughs> we should have coordinated. <clears throat> uh, the tourists lean over the riftways to hell, staring at the damned. And then a long parenthetical. Perhaps the worst part of damnation: eternal torture is bearable in noble silence alone, but an audience eating crisps and chips and chestnuts, an audience who aren't even really that interested. They must feel like something at the zoo, the damned. And I like a lot of what's going on here. Um, part of it is in kind of the, the context of the, the story as a whole that perhaps the narrator is giving us his thoughts here where he's seeing the damned and thinking about how terrible it is. And as we talked about at the end, perhaps he knows that he might be one of the damned in the future, but also just that idea of how terrible it can sometimes feel to be, have other people staring and looking at you while something is going on that is terrible for you. And it's the distance that can be made even worse by the presence of people. Cause there's one thing to talk about his isolation mm-hmm. when he's sitting alone at home. It's another thing to feel isolated when you're in a room full of people and the isolation you can feel when there's clearly an out group that is an out group of one that is you versus how you can feel. Um, if you really have camaraderie with those around you. And so here again, you've, you've got this juxtaposition where you're in public and some people are having a great time eating their crisps and chips and chestnuts, <laughs> but yet the damned are, are suffering and they can't even do it in noble silence. Um, nor are, are they taking advantage of any kind of showmanship here of like, you know, performing for the audience. It's just, it's misery and it's even more miserable by the people sitting there blankly looking and, or yelling out to say hi and being pointed out to relatives. Yeah, this is a really interesting because this observation is is not an objective observation, right? This is from the perspective of the narrator. He's looking down on the damned and saying, the worst thing, if I were down there, the worst thing I would feel is that I, I'm not able to do this in private, that I'm on sort of display. But it's not like he ever actually asks Great Uncle Joseph if he's if he doesn't like that his niece has brought Narissa by to, to see him, maybe he would like that. This might actually tell us more about the, the narrator than it tells us about what it is actually like to be damned and tormented in hell. And this idea that the computers are, are simultaneously you know, connecting us all and making us visible to other people all the time, but then also emphasizing our both our loneliness, but then also our inability to have privacy right there's this sort of strange juxtaposition where suddenly we we can not we can't have our cake and we also can't eat it all at the the same time and that that's really kind of the the cyberpunk dystopic nightmare here yeah you're living in uh kind of a the public can see into your bedroom at all times but you're alone in your bedroom well we have 
almost expertly taken this to exactly right on time. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. And we want to say a huge thanks to Phil Kahn for having us. We especially want to say a huge thanks to our live audience for, for coming and hanging out with us today. Uh, you can find us and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. This show, Hanging Out with the Dream King, also all of our other podcasts are available wherever you get podcasts. We do hope you'll, you'll check us out. We'd, we'd really love to have you reading along with us as we go through the Sandman and, and other Neil Gaiman stories as well. And the one other thing I wanted to note, um, so this particular work, if you haven't read it, is in Smoke and Mirrors. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, Angels and Visitations is the earlier work that has it. Uh, There are at least two audio versions of Neil reading it himself that you can probably locate. One that's the easy one to find is the audible version of Smoke and Mirrors. Um, It's not the one I recommend. If you can find and someone has uploaded to YouTube a version of Warning Contains Language, Um, Neil is a lot more performative in his and expressive in his reading of um, cold colors in that. Um, So I recommend checking that out if you're interested, Um, particularly so you can hear him sing out Pigeons Alive-O, Alive, Alive-O. Yeah, it's a fantastic reading. And we do have some copies of the book that we'd love to to give away. So if you want a copy of the book, please come on up. We've got some other swag as well. Thank you so much, guys.